Well, open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. We're making our way ever so slowly through this book, sometimes one verse at a time. And this is another one verse at a time sermon for sure. Ephesians, chapter 5. As you're turning there, I want to share with you something that I, I read yesterday. I'm reading a book by John Frame, that's a, who's one of my favorite theologians, and was so moved at his encouragement toward theological thinking. And in that, he said this, and I wanted to share this with you. John Frame explains that theology has three responsibilities. Number one, to define the content of biblical revelation. What does the Bible say? How does it connect to what the Bible says elsewhere? Number two, to challenge Christians to reject ideas that are not biblical. And then number three, to encourage Christians to hold to their biblical beliefs with more assurance and confidence. I think those are three perfectly suited outline points for how Paul shepherds our hearts in the book of Ephesians. To define the content of God's wisdom, biblical wisdom, to challenge Christians to reject ideas that are not biblical, and to encourage Christians to hold their biblical beliefs with more assurance and with more confidence. We're in a section specifically in Ephesians chapter 5 where Paul is literally checking all three of these boxes verse by verse, but particularly in the verse we studied last time, 5.3 and 5.4, today he is particularly doing number two of John Frame's list, to challenge Christians to reject ideas that are not biblical. Ephesians 5.4, there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. It's a verse that most of us who've been around the faith for any amount of time are aware of and know of. And there's a sense in which you can read that and say, let's go to lunch. But I think there's more there than we might see at first reading. Here's the context. Let's back up and read it so we have the whole context in mind. Verse 3. This is all about light, living in the light, living as light, living as children of light, walking in light. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. <clears throat> For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine 
on you. In the middle of that paragraph, or really toward the beginning, there's the little phrase we're going to look at and isolate our attention on this morning. Verse 4, there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. What makes you laugh? What causes you to giggle? What do you find humorous? What do you share to get others to laugh? Few things reveal our true character as much as the nature of our humor. I have regrettable memories of jokes and joking that go way back to my childhood. Many of them were things that made me laugh, that were off color, that were racist, that were demeaning, or, or just plain dirty. And it doesn't take much to recall some of those things that I heard and even shared. But there's the opposite side of humor that, that we need to consider as well, and that's identifying what humor is offensive to us. What are you repulsed by? What do you resist? 18th century German physicist George Christoph Lichtenberg once said this, a person reveals his character by nothing so clearly as the joke he resents. Chuck Swindoll says, we need to think of our tongue as a messenger that runs errands for our heart. Our words reveal our character. <clears throat> That's at the heart of what Paul is describing here. Let me remember, remind you that we're looking at life in the light. This is part two of life in the light. Specifically, we're going to be looking at the second in this series. We looked at walking with illuminated purity in verse three. This morning, we're going to be looking at walking with illuminated, walking with enlightened decency or decorum. Then we'll look next week at walking with illuminated circumspection, realizing heaven and hell are real and we need to walk in that light. Then walking with illuminated sanctification in verses 7 to 10, holiness that he requires, and then walking with illuminated exposure, the fact that our lives are actually God's flashlight on the world and on sin. After showing us the need to avoid any hint of sexual immorality or impropriety, he expands the net to capture our talking about inappropriate things as well. Look back to verse 3. This is our last study. Immorality or any impurity, that word for immorality is porneia. We said porneia is anything regarding sex, visual or experience, thought about or, or done, anything that's done sexually outside the marriage bed. That's porneia. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among holy ones, among saints. On the heels of that, and there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. At the beginning of our study this morning, I want to remember that joking, inappropriate language of any kind is all a subset of, of, of our, our language, our, our speaking, our tongues. The Bible has so much to say about what we say. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, Solomon said. Proverbs 12, 18, there is one who speaks rashly like 
is like one who thrusts a sword, but the tongue of the wise is, it brings healing. Proverbs 17, 27, he who restrains his words has knowledge. He who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's considered prudent. Proverbs 29, 19, a slave will not be in Instructed by words alone, for though he understands, there will be no response. Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. And we just studied a few verses ago, Ephesians 4.29, let no zero, no unwholesome word proceed, come out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for building up, for edification, according to the need of the moment. So it will give grace to those who hear. Important words about words, but I think the most penetrating thing ever said about what we say was was said by the Lord Jesus. This is dramatic and traumatic. It is the most piercing thing ever said about what could be said. He's debating the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12. Listen to these words. Jesus says, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man out of his treasure brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. And I say to you that, listen to this, every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render account for in the day of judgment. That's heavy, but not as heavy as what he says next. For by your words, Jesus said, by your words you shall be justified And by your words, you shall be condemned. Jesus is not implementing a works system of salvation here. He's saying a justified, a saved heart demonstrates itself in what it says and how it says it. But an unsaved heart reveals itself in what it says and how it says it. The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Every careless word men shall speak, they shall render account for in the day of judgment. If you want to know what a person is really like, just listen long enough and you'll find out. I find it interesting that the brother, the half-brother rather of of Jesus, James, had so much to say about words. And I've always thought about that over the year. Why Why does James talk so much about talking? And I think it might be fair in our sanctified imaginations that he had a lot to say about words because he grew up with a half-brother who never said anything wrong. Can you imagine that? Never sarcasm, never anything off-color, never anything disrespectful to mom or dad. He grew up with a perfect brother. And I think that that had an impact on him, which is why when he writes his letter, He says so much about 
talking and so much about words. James 1 verse 19, this you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear and say it with me, slow to speak and slow to anger. James 1 26, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not control or bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. If you don't control your tongue, your Christianity you say you believe in is not legitimate. And then we all know James chapter 3, the longest treatment on the tongue in the New Testament. James 3, 2, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble, listen to this. If anyone does not stumble, sin, and what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. How much does that talk about influence? But he goes even further in describing the tongue with these illustrations. If we put bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct the entire body as well. The point is you got a little two or three inch bit that you put in the mouth of a, of a thousand plus pound animal and you can direct it anywhere you want it to go. A little 90 pound girl can sit on a horse and direct it wherever she wishes because of the influence of that tiny little bit. So is the tongue. Look at ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are they, direct, they are directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot deserves. I had an opportunity one time in San Diego to see a, um, an aircraft carrier, which is massive. And I went out the back and the, the, the water was clear enough to look down at the rudder. There are two rudders in, in parallel. And they were just a few feet by a few feet long. And you could direct that ship anywhere you want it to go just by shifting the rudder. That's James's point here. Also, the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest fire is set aflame by such a small fire. You can burn down. We've seen this over and over out west. An entire forest can be burned down. Millions of acres burned by one careless flame. And the tongue is a fire, the very word of iniquity, world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and is set on, and is set on fire. It sets on fire the course of our life <clears throat> and is set on fire by, by hell. His point is, your tongue is influential. It directs your life, but it also reveals the true you. And Jesus said we will be judged by every careless word and we will be justified. In other words, we will be, we'll, we'll be proven to God by what our heart is like, by our words, what we say and how we say them. Paul has just talked about in verse 3 of chapter 5 of Ephesians, the need to be sexually pure. We dealt with that last time. But now he turns to verse 4 with obscenity, foolish talk course, joking. But what governs these two verses are the little phrases at the end. Can you notice those with me? At the end of verse 3, as is proper among saints, if you're going to be one of God's holy ones, you should act like it. At the end of verse 4, which are not fitting for saints, for holy ones. The point is really simple. Those who say they belong to Christ should act like it. Those who say they belong to Christ should talk like it. The connection 
contextually between verse 3 and 4 is vital for our understanding. Verse 4 is a continuation of verse 3, which is to avoid sexual sins. And now he says in verse 4, don't talk about things that are inappropriate. He uses a threefold catalog of sins to avoid filthiness in the New American Standard, filthiness, silly talk, and coarse jesting. I think those, because of the context, have everything to do with impropriety related to off-color speaking sexually. Oh, there's more than that, but it certainly is at the heart of this. It's interesting, by the way, in the original Greek, these three terms are what we call hopox legomena. Isn't that an interesting word? phrase. That means they're only used here, which says something. When Paul looked for vocabulary to describe this, this was unique ground for him to, 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 to hoe here. Peter O'Brien sums this up. All three of these terms refer to a dirty mind expressing itself in vulgar conversation. This kind of language must be avoided as utterly inappropriate among those whom God has set apart as Holy, that's a great summary. And we'll see that kind of explained out as we go. So let's dive into this verse, one verse. And looking at this verse, I think we can discern together four sins unsuitable for the mouths of believers. Four sins unsuitable for the mouths of believers. And I have in parentheses there, children of light. Why? Because he calls us light and children of light walk like that. So that's the, the, the core nexus of this entire uh, section, that we walk and be, behave as children of light, Jesus being the light. The first sin unsuitable for the mouth of any believer is pretty obvious. Obscene language. Obscene language. Verse 4, and. Stop right there. And. And. Very important Verse 3, Paul warns us against any hint of sexual sin. Now in verse 4, he turns to the sin of inappropriate speaking and joking, probably related to those sexual sins. First word is interesting. The New American Standard translates it as filthiness, probably better, obscenity. It was used in classical Greek to speak of ways that were degrading and disgraceful. It was used, are you ready for this, for bad words. Every culture has bad words. And I don't even know, uh, I don't know what to call them anymore. Cuss words, curse words, bad words. Let's call them obscenities, okay? Obscene words. That's what he's talking about here. The Bible addresses cussing right here in this word. There must be no obscenity. By the way, feel the flow of this passage. You, you, you see in the New American Standard there, there's, there's some... There are some words in italics. Those are not in the original, but listen how it will flow without them. I think there's a supply there for a good reason, but listen. Verse 3, but porneia, which is any sin outside the marriage bed, immorality, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints and filthiness, you could say also, obscenity also. It tracks right along exactly with those sexual sins. The same root is used in the word in verse 12 for disgraceful. Verse 11, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them, for it is obscene. 
disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. It's also the root of the word that's translated in some translations, dirty speech or abusive speech in Colossians 3, 8. But now you also put them aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscenity, abusive speech from your mouth. A deeper dive into the ways this word was used in the classical Greek world reveals, quote, any speech that has that causes shame or dishonor. It's cussing and cursing and bad language. So it's real simple. In other words, Paul is warning against the use of obscene words. We would call these cuss words, curse words. Simply put, Christians should not cuss, swear, or use profanity. It's as clear as a bell in any form or even close. What we say matters. I've talked to, that's not true. I have been friends with many believers who before they were Christians had foul mouths. And it's interesting that when the Spirit of God invades their life and and transforms them, one of the very first knee-jerk reflex responses of their hearts is to clean up their language. Even unbelievers are aware of improper language. How many times as a believer have you been in a context where someone knows you're a believer, they've said something foul and said, oh, sorry. And isn't it interesting how much... How many bad words have to do with sexual impropriety or body parts? Propriety, I mean, private parts. It's, it's amazing. Those go hand in glove with each other. Christians don't use obscenities. There must be none, Paul says, zero That's not all, though. He also says foolish talk. First sin, unsuitable for the mouth of a believer. Obscene language. The second sin listed here, foolish talk. The New American Standard says, and silly talk. Really interesting description here. It means foolish talking, silly talking. Again, this is a word only used here in the Greek New Testament. But you know it well if I break it down for you. Morologia. Morologia. Moro. We get the word moron from the word moro. Logia, to speak. To speak as a moron, literally. To be stupid in your talking. This is exactly what the word means. Let me read you out of the Greek dictionary. Talking, which is language included in carelessness and thoughtlessness and silliness. We would call this in our modern vernacular gutter language. Just uneducated gutter language. Ever notice, by the way, that the mouth saturated with cussing inserts these words into their language in foolish and silly ways that don't even make grammatical sense? They use nouns as verbs and verbs as nouns and just cuss away, and it becomes a verbal bridge between phrases without communicating anything specific. That's what this is talking about. Careless cussing. That's what it is. Cuss words become verbal bridges rather than actual descriptors. 
In this context, Paul is attaching such gutter language to the previous verse about sexual immorality. And going back to the governing principle of chapter 4, verse 29, these are useless words when it comes to building up and edifying one another. Useless, silly talking. The question here is, what do you talk about and how do you talk about what you talk about? Foolish talk. You say, what would be the opposite of foolish talk? Chapter 4, verse 29. Words that are good for edification according to the need of the moment, so they give grace to those who hear. But these two first words build to the third concept that I think really is the heart of where Paul's going in that, and that's this, dirty joking. He doesn't say and, he says or, coarse jesting. It's kind of like set a in opposition to those or in, in conjunction with those, or coarse jesting, coarse joking, inappropriate joking. It points to joking around, I think in this context, that is sexually suggestive with sexual overtones and double entendres. It's the climax of the sins in verse 4, and it's purposeful. I think when you look at the first two of these, uh, these sins, um, obscene language is kind of just slips into people's usage, and so does silly talk, where they just talk uh, nonsense with, with uh, obscenities kind of laced in. But this one, this one's different. This is deliberate. This is purposeful, coarse jesting. It is the purposeful, intentional use of wit, humor, to get another, per, another person to laugh, especially as sexual matters and sexual sin. Boy, you see this in stand-up comedians. You see it in talk show hosts who are ever ready to turn a phrase into a sexual innuendo. And whereas obscenity and silly talk are informal, habitual, and casual, coarse jesting is planned, premeditated, and prepared. As a quick aside, you have to ask, what's the motivation for this kind of talking? And there really is, you don't have to do a lot of deep dive to understand this. This kind of language, this kind of joking, all linked to a heart of pride that talks in such a way as to gain attention for the self, gain admiration, generate laughter, which is appreciation for yourself. It's, it's all pride. It's selfish. Also, this does not mean, by the way, that a Christian cannot laugh and have a good sense of humor. God gave us a sense of humor. I love laughing. My family loves laughing at me. It's a, stop laughing at that. Um, but our laughter is not like the world's laughter that gets a cheap laugh at the expense of others or at God's gift of sexual intimacy. Humor is wonderful. Praise God for humor. It's fun to laugh. It's, it's relieving to the soul to laugh and it's a gift of God. But how do we know if it's appropriate or not? Look at the next phrase. Which are not fitting. He takes these three sins and says, which are not fitting. Not fitting for what? Not fitting for a child of the light, of a, for a believer. It's directly linked to the phrase in verse 3, must not even be named among you, which are not fitting, as is proper among holy ones, among saints. That takes us back to chapter 1, verse 4. 
God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? Why did God choose us? So that we will be holy and blameless before him. He chose us, he saved us, he redeemed us, he purchased us, he died, he sent his son for us and the son died for us so that we would be holy and blameless before him. Christians should have as a supreme desire to become more and more and more holy and blameless. Ephesians 5.27, we'll come back to this when we're talking about marriage and the gospel. That Christ, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she, that she would be holy and blameless. Colossians 1.21, the parallel passage. And he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That just, that just rips on my heart that all, all of Christ's atoning power that through his fleshly body in death was to present me before the Father holy and blameless beyond reproach. That's the reconciliation result. That's reconciliation purpose. That's the motivation At the end of verse four, Paul gives us an incredible practical application for how to remedy these three sins in our mouths. The fourth unsuitable sin for mouth, a mouth of, an unbelie- of a believer, rather, is this, thankless dialogue. Said the other, other way, we should be thankful. Thankless dialogue demonstrates the heart of an unbeliever. Thankful dialogue is the heart of one who loves Christ. But rather, instead of speaking like that, but rather giving thanks. Giving of thanks. The antidote for foul speaking is giving thanks. Being thankful. Walter Layfeld suggests, he goes straight to the heart with this. Desire, think about this. Walk with him a second. He's going to help our hearts here. Desire comes out of dissatisfaction with what we have. Just let that roll around in your mind. Desire, longing, we could say lust, comes out of dissatisfaction with what we have. Thanksgiving, on the other hand, not only expresses satisfaction, but in a sense can even create satisfaction within us. Thankfulness. Most of us have looked at the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. How about this one? In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ. It's interesting he didn't say be thankful for everything. I'm not thankful for sin and death, but in everything we can find thanksgiving. That's the point. Thankfulness, friends. Thankfulness, literally, really is the secret sauce of your soul's peace and contentment is being thankful. Thankfulness is the spiritually cultivated awareness that we deserve nothing but God's judgment, but we have been given grace and mercy in the gospel. 
Are you cultivating, cultivating that awareness of thankfulness? Again, Dr. O'Brien is helpful here. <laughs> this is good. Thanksgiving is almost a synonym for the Christian life. What a great statement. Thanksgiving is almost a synonym for the Christian life. It is the response of gratitude to God's saving activity and creation and redemption, and thus a recognition that he is the ultimate source of every blessing. Here in verse 4, thanksgiving reflects a Christian attitude to sex and is antithetical to pagan attitudes with its immorality and vulgarity, end quote. Now, clear enough, but I want to insert a, a rather uncomfortable footnote here, if I may. Verses three and verse, verses three and four, rather, have a significant bearing on our entertainment choices. Significant. I think Paul gives us a simple litmus test for what we watch, what we read, and what we listen to. How about this? Can I express thanks to God for what I'm being entertained by? That's the antidote for wrong thinking, speaking, and acting. Thanksgiving. Can I express thanks to God for what I'm being entertained by? What a penetrating thought. Because Thanksgiving, as he says, is the unthankfulness, thankless dialogue is a sin Can I be thankful for this? What do we do with this? Well, I got to tell you, I, I, this, was a, this was an interesting week with these things kind of bouncing back and forth in my own heart. So as I often do, I'm going to give you my own takeaways. These were the ways the Lord just kind of ironed out wrinkles in my own heart. I think I have five of them. First of all, indecent speech stirs sinful affections in your heart. Can we just be honest with ourselves? Improper talking, improper joking, inappropriate talking and joking stimulates and circulates thoughts in your mind that generate sinful thinking and lustful thoughts and inappropriate affections. Paul's already told us in chapter 4, verse 22, in reference to your former manner of life, lay aside that old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. Indecent speech stirs the lusts that lie to you about their satisfying effects. Also impacts our joking. Proverbs 26, verse 18. Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death, so is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, was I not joking? And the point is that sinning and saying I was joking offends our precious Lord. Indecent speech stirs sinful affections in your heart. Number two, Indecent, indecent speech tempts others to sin. Well, we've got to be honest about our effect on others. How does it tempt others to sin? It encourages them to laugh at sin if it's a joke. It en encourages them to, to participate in the discussion in a sinful way about the sin, the words or the jokes. But this is a way that I, I found was, was very 
convicting my own heart. Indecent speech lets sin slide. It can. In other words, if you're in a conversation with someone and one of you says something inappropriate, whether by joke or just by, by slipping and saying something you shouldn't have, and that is not confronted or talked about, you're letting sin slide and it tempts others to sin and sin more. We love each other by correction, by care. Indecent speech tempts others to sin in many, many ways. Third, many times we could say indecent speech depreciates God's gift of sexual intimacy. If we're joking about private parts and inappropriate sexual innuendos, we are not being thankful that God has given us such a wonderful gift between a man and a woman in marriage. It denigrates it. It depreciates it. It sins against others. It sins against your own heart. It sins against your spouse. It sins against your future spouse. It depreciates what God has gifted us with such grace. This is obvious. Indecent speech tarnishes your reputation. Do you really want to be known as someone with a bad mouth, a foul mouth, a nasty mouth? Well, that's incongruent with Christian life as we just read, but no, no, no. It ruins your reputation. And should you, not should you, when you slip up and say things that you ought not say, there's a remedy. First John, if we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. This is not demanding perfection. It's demanding progression and softness to our sins, which is what the gospel trains us to be like and to think like. And this is how we love each other. Indecent speech should never be tolerated. That impacts our entertainment choices. That impacts our conversations. But are we in any way letting indecent speech Obscenity, filthy talk, filthy uh, joking, or, or innuendos. Are, are we letting that in any way have access to our hearts? There's an important football game in the near future. My suspicion is many of the commercials that are attendant to that game will include a lot of this kind of language. May I encourage you to use your mute button and instead of being curious, be holy. It's a game. Are we letting indecent speech be tolerated? Wow, it's easy. Why is this important? Well, in Romans 1, Paul gives an amazing list, and I'm going to, don't, don't turn there, I'm just going to blitz through it, of sins that an unredeemed heart gravitates toward and, and, and is, is habitually involved in. He says um, in Romans 1, 28, 
They did not see fit to acknowledge God, unbelievers any longer. God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they knew the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but here it is, but they give hearty approval, heartfelt approval to those who practice them. It's not enough just to control your tongue. It's not being susceptible to giving hearty approval to those who won't. It gets scary in the next verse, next week, verse 5. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral, impure person or covetous man, those are the sins in verse 3, who's not an adulterer, there's the sum up, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, what are these things? Immorality, impurity, greed, filthiness, silly talk, coarse jesting. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. So participation in these sins is disobeying, and God's wrath will be drawn to that like a magnet, like a lightning rod because it demonstrates a heart that's not justified, like Jesus said, by your words you are justified and by your words you're condemned. Wow, do you? From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What are our hearts demonstrating to not only others, but to the Lord about the condition of our souls? Words matter. Words matter a lot. And we'll see just how much when we study verses five and six next week. It could be that the Lord would use a passage like this to make you say, I, I, I don't know the Savior. I'm, I, this is indicative that I'm an unbeliever. No matter what I think, no matter what I've said, no, no matter anything, please don't leave today without doing business with the Lord about the condition of your soul, there is hope and grace and forgiveness for any and all sin in Jesus Christ because of his death for those sins and his resurrection from the dead.